I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Whether it's robots taking our jobs, algorithms directing our actions, or social media choosing our president, we're fast becoming aware of how our technological and economic advancements are becoming untethered from our individual and collective human interests. This is where we change the script, rewrite the codes, and envision a society built for and by real people. My name is Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, social permaculture designer Adam Brock. We often talk in permaculture how nature is our number one textbook. As much as we create our whole own very sophisticated systems as people, at the end of the day, we're still animals. We still follow those laws of ecology. Brock will be telling us how to change here now and rejoin the ecosystems of which we're part. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Team Human is supported entirely by listeners. Thanks to our regular and recent contributors, including Bill Melison, Otter Paris, Suzanne Sloman, William Lee, Dode, Anderson Bell, Ben Capel. If you'd like to join our team of supporters, visit teamhuman.fm and click support to make either a one-time or recurring donation in an amount that feels right for you. If you aren't in a position to help us financially, you can also support this show by spreading the word and reviewing us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I was in the UK this week doing some talks and interviews that we'll be posting here soon. And while I was doing an interview for something called London Real, my phone started going crazy. All the news agencies wanted me to comment on something to do with Amazon, and I had no idea what it was they were talking about. But it was my friend Ari Wallach's text message that explained it all. He said, Amazon just bought Whole Foods. It's over the world. (laughs) The unease is widespread, and it's raised new calls for breaking up Jeff Bezos' impending monopoly by force. 
So surely the company, which now generates 30% of all online and offline retail sales growth in the U.S., and already controls 40% of internet cloud services, has reached too far. The 3% hike in Amazon's share price the hours after the announcement, which would alone more than pay for the acquisition, may attest less to the deal's appropriateness than to investors' growing fear that missing out on Amazon means missing out on the future of the economy. I can hear some of the rich people already pausing the podcast and buying more Amazon stock. So whatever you may think of Jeff Bezos and whether or not antitrust regulations can justifiably be applied to a company whose expansion doesn't raise but actually lowers costs for end consumers, it may all be beside the point. Many of us and the government get that something's amiss, but we're all so deeply enmeshed in the logic of last century's version of free market industrial capitalism that we can't quite bring ourselves to call this out for the threat it imposes to our markets, our economy, even our planet. The reason why monopolies were broken up in an industrial economy was that they tended to gain control over the platforms through which their products were distributed. The biggest oil company ends up controlling shipping and refineries. The biggest airline controls too many gates. The biggest phone company controls the wires. The biggest movie company controls the theaters, making it hard for independents or anybody else to get their movies shown. But in a digital economy, the platform is the business. Netflix content sells its platforms. Apple's devices sell its supposed ecosystem. Amazon's book business, like Uber's cab business, was just an easy foothold. The low-hanging fruit of an existing but inefficient marketplace through which to establish a platform monopoly. From that beachhead, the company then pivots to other verticals. The problem is, when an existing market is merely a means to another end, the company doesn't consider the long-term effects of its actions. Amazon treated the book industry the same way companies like Walmart once treated the territories into which they expanded. Use a war chest of capital to undercut prices, put competitors out of business, become the sole employer in the community, turn employees into part-time shift workers, lobby for deregulation, and effectively extract all the value from a given region before closing up shop and moving to the next one. And all this can get justified because, well, prices are lower. This model of doing business, one that even a proto-fascist like Henry Ford considered obscene, has not actually served corporations well. Corporate profits have been steadily decreasing relative to corporate size for the past 75 years. That means corporations are great at extracting all the value from a marketplace, but really bad at deploying the money they've accumulated in the process. So they take all the poker chips off the table, leaving nothing for the other players to exchange between themselves. And by sucking their own customers and suppliers dry, these companies end up destroying the marketplaces on which they depend for revenue. It's a form of financial obesity where the only thing left for the company to do is acquire a new marketplace, extract all its value, and then move on. Thus, Whole Foods. And in the real world, such extraction used to take years, even decades, to run through its cycle. But in a digital economy, network effects accelerate this cycle so that an entire taxi industry can be turned into an Internet of Things in a matter of months. 
It's not that internet founders are somehow more evil or rapacious than their predecessors, although maybe some of them are. It's simply that when companies are platforms, survivability and scalability amount to the same thing. Just as winner-takes-all network effects lead to just one Taylor Swift and millions of penniless artists, these same dynamics promote the establishment of platform monopolies like Amazon, like Facebook, like Google. The problem is less that these single platforms emerge than the fact that their business plans are taken from the obsolete playbooks of the industrial age, where extraction was the only game in town. While internet servers and financial capital can scale up almost infinitely, the real world cannot. Humans only have so much time and attention in a given day. The topsoil only has so many nutrients in a given acre. As the merchants of abstracted digital products like ebooks and streaming media apply their same business models to the markets and environment on which real people depend for sustenance, parallel dynamics become a lot more dangerous. Not that Whole Foods was ever a sustainable business in itself. Healthy food and sustainable agriculture are simply incompatible with year-round organic summer produce in all 50 states. However catchy the slogan, conscious capitalism really doesn't exist. Of the three factors of production, land, labor, and capital, the consciousness part of the equation has always been provided by the places and the people which means if we're actually going to confront the devastating potential of an Amazon monopoly, we have to come to grips with more than the way one company has seized control of multiple verticals. We have to look instead at how we've employed our digital platforms solely in the service of an extractive industrial age model of growth and decide whether we're capable of upgrading to a genuinely digital and distributed form of capitalism. This would mean adopting circular, even revenue-based models that sustain our marketplaces instead of simply colonizing them. If you want to find out more about how to do that, uh, listen to the rest of these podcasts. Listen to from episode one right up to now. Or get my book, it just came out in paperback, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. It's cheap, it's available on Amazon, but it's also available on IndieBound or at any local bookstore. One member of Team Human who is intent on supporting The transition that I'm describing here is Adam Brock, author of Change Here Now. So hello, Adam Brock, social permaculture designer and author of the new Change Here Now, Permaculture Solutions for Personal and Community Transformation. I mean, obviously, I'm hoping people know Change Here Now is a a wink and a nod to um, Ram Dass's uh, "Be Here Now." I'm, I'm assuming he was he and and that notion was more of an inspiration than just the pun for you, right? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think you know a lot of permaculture in general, and and a lot of the guests you talk with on the show can you know maybe trace some of their intellectual roots to the counterculture of the '60s and '70s, and so it was kind of a an honoring the elders in that sense of you know that being one of the the kind of foundational texts. 
of that era, um, kind of seeing what does that look like for this era? Right. I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting play on words because it makes you realize, well, you kind of have to be here now in order to change here now. Uh-huh. But we also have to change here now if we want to keep being here now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, so j- just existing and just, uh, you know, being in your own little happy uh, meditation zone is, is no longer sufficient. And I think most of us realize that. Yeah. I mean, there is an urge and I, I get the feeling sometimes I know you're out in uh, out to me anyway, out in uh, Denver and uh, Denver, Colorado. And I run into people who, you know, move to Boulder and, you know, they'll, Usually they've already got money from what they've done and they take their $5 million of savings and build a solar paneled residence out in the middle of nowhere and then claim that they're in a, in a <laughs> completely renewable, uh, leading a renewable lifestyle. Right. Only in order to make that renewable lifestyle happen, they had to extract a whole lot of value from, uh, <laughs> from the real world. And, and create it. So that's obviously, that's not the kind of permaculture solution uh, that you're talking about. What you seem to be uh, attempting to envision is a, a kind of a slow incremental process through which we can kind of re-steer this whole ship. Yeah, no, that's right. And and I mean, you know, my journey as a permaculturalist is is maybe somewhat unique. Like a lot of people, I got into permaculture through gardening, you know, super into perennial plants and food forests and all that. But I've lived my whole life in big cities, uh, mostly in Denver, and then uh, went to college in New York City. And so everything, you know, I, I see is through that lens of that. that's my native habitat, so to speak. And obviously the, the keystone species, the the most important animal in that uh, urban ecosystem is Homo sapiens. And, mm-hmm. and so how can we take all of these ideas in permaculture that's, that's about ecological design and apply it to how Homo sapiens work and how Homo sapiens can become more regenerative in our own interactions with each other? And, and that's kind of what led me down the path that, that ended up in this book. Because uh, I guess permaculture originally was meant as a really an approach to the soil, right? Yeah, it, it started out as this kind of, you know, clever way of shortening the words permanent and agriculture. Um, and how can we create an agriculture that doesn't deplete the soil? And there's, you know, a lot of great work that's been done in that regard. Um, but pretty quickly, you know, its co-founders and, and other kind of people who are teaching it realize that you can't have a permanent soil, you can't have a permanent agriculture without a permanent culture to support it. And, and, of course, agriculture is only one of the many important things we need for culture. And so over time, you know, permaculture as a discourse, as a movement, has started to look farther and farther out in, into natural building and appropriate technology. And, and so this is just a way of kind of extending some of that into things like uh, alternative economics, finance, organizational design, uh, things like that. Do the, the principles of agriculture and permaculture, uh, permaculture, you know, farming, do they um, extend sort of one for one to mm-hmm. economics and other things? Or in other words, is it, a, is it a metaphorical relationship or do you find they just tend to apply on all these different scales? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, and I think it's a little of both. You know, I mean, I think we often talk in permaculture how nature is our number one textbook, you know, and as much as we create our whole own very sophisticated systems as people, at the end of the day, we're still animals. We still follow those laws of ecology. 
And so there are some actually very direct connections from ecosystems that we can learn uh, in terms of how, how humans work. So you know, one of the foundational things in the book is I look at the, the two patterns that you know, are, are common in nature of networks and hierarchies. If you think of hierarchies as branching patterns, the, like watersheds or the, our circulatory systems or tree roots versus networks mm -hmm. where you find in, uh, in ecosystem dynamics or in mycelia underground. And you kind of look at the function of those two different patterns. Hierarchies are really good at collecting or distributing things, and, and it's a one-way flow. And then networks are more resilient, and they're more about innovation and two-way flow and kind of responding to, to change in a dynamic way. You take all of that and apply it to human systems, and we can learn so much about how communities organize, how institutions are put together, because, you know, again, in, in human society, we're surrounded by hierarchies. They're very efficient. We live in an, an efficiency-obsessed society, but things are generally flowing in one way, whether it's you know, corporations extracting profits and value from communities or um, you know, governments distributing tax dollars. And then networks, which are you know, kind of we think of as more horizontal groups, are often more innovative. We, we kind of yearn to be part of more networks, but we also have to understand they're, they're a little bit less efficient. So, you know, like the, the human brain is a network, right? Uh, it's 2% of our body weight, but takes 10% of our body's oxygen in order to sustain it. Similarly, mm -hmm. the, the internet is, is the kind of quintessential network in society, takes almost exactly the same amount of our society's energy to keep going, 10%, once you count all the server farms and, you know, all the, the manufacturing processes. So, yeah, you know, that's one example where the, the natural systems provide a direct reference. And then there's lots of other areas in the book where it is a little bit metaphorical, but, but hopefully nonetheless still illuminating. So these, these essentially two kinds of systems, these, these more rhizomatic, uh, you know, ginger root network systems versus uh -huh. these more oak tree hierarchical ones, are they in competition with one another? Because as humans, we tend to look at this and think, oh, you know, Donald Trump and the government, they're the big hierarchical yeah. one. And we, the hippies and pot smokers and loving people are going to be part of this more networked egalitarian one, and we're going to beat them. And then everything will be a ginger root. <laughs> but uh, I think you're envisioning that both of these things can kind of coexist and not even necessarily compete with each other, but somehow support one another. Yeah, that, that's right. And, you know, the way I kind of look at it is these archetypes, right, the network and the hierarchy, they're almost like the yin and yang of human organization. Um, and so they're, they're fractally embedded within one another that you never really truly see them in life in, in complete isolation, right? Even a, a corporation is made up of, when you look at how it gets work done, it's a lot of little teams of, you know, five people, eight people that are working in, in somewhat of a network-like way often. Um, so right, but you, but the natural the natural impulse of a human like mm -hmm. I a little girl from across the street came to our door and saw amidst the flowers uh, in 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 our front lawn she saw this mushroom mm -hmm. growing and she's like oh you got to get that out as if <laughs> <laughs> this was the foreign species invading yeah, yeah. what we're doing um, so there, so even though there might be that impulse. Um, the, the mushroom belongs there too, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in, in the book, I talk about how do we skillfully combine these networks and hierarchies in ways that, that optimize our resilience, our, our ability to, to create thriving communities. So, you know, I talk about 
what I call consensual hierarchies. So, so many of our hierarchies today are just so huge, you know, we've lost a sense of scale, we've lost accountability, you know, things I think you, you've talked about lots of times. Um, if, if they stay within a certain scale where people can actually still connect with each other, where leadership rotates on a regular basis and they're accountable to, to the people at the, the quote-unquote bottom of the hierarchy, I think they can, they can be really valuable structures. And then, and then similarly, networks, if they're designed with intention, which sometimes networks are, but a lot of the times they, they just kind of happen and people assume that the, the magic of emergence will just make them work. And then they don't. And, and you get these power dynamics rising to the surface in a, in a little bit more of a, a pernicious way um, that can be damaging to those networks. So, you know, I think they're both good. We just both need to under we need to understand their their pros and cons and combine them skillfully. I mean, when you're consulting to an organization, I'm, I'm guessing that a majority of the time, these are organizations that are sort of more hierarchical that you need to open up the channels of two-way communication. But does it ever happen the other way? Do you ever just meet a group of people who are like so egalitarian and you have to say, look, your guys are going to need a little bit of vertical structure here if you want to <laughs> get this thing moving. Yeah, I, I do see that. I mean, you know, the, I think the classic example that, that most of us these days are familiar with is Occupy, right? Where right. They, were, they were so focused on um, some, some really amazing, you know, strategies of consensus and, and these, this direct democracy that things got so bogged down in process at least in, in the parts of Occupy that I observed, and, and I know it wasn't this way all over the country, but I think people new to these ideas that were, were just so adamant about horizontality that they didn't understand that that comes with trade-offs of, you know, things take a lot more time when you have to hear the perspective of, you know, all 150 people in a general assembly. And so, you know, coming up with things like spokes councils where you can delegate authority to someone without making them a dictator, um, I, I have talked with a lot of groups about that, and, and they found it really useful. I know. It's so hard when people get, it's kind of you push through cynicism to the point where you don't believe in anything. So there's no representative democracy. You know, every, the, the, they get to the place where it's as if we have to walk around with some kind of a voting button on our body at all times so that we can be consulted on, you know, on any, <laughs> right, right. any question. And it's like, oh, hold on a minute. Maybe we can delegate. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't mean you lose your, your authority or agency as a human being. It means you trust some other humans enough to uh, uh, make certain kinds of decisions for you. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that it's trust. It's all about, we, we need to create the conditions. We need to design those conditions where communities of people can start trusting each other again, where, where we can rebuild those networks so that we can start to re-delegate authority in different ways. And, and each one of us can, can focus our time on what we do best instead of trying to fix the, the whole thing by you know, putting our opinion out there about every single thing. Right. I mean, and that gets to one of the core problems that I've been working on, which is, you know, how do we engender that sense of trust between people? It's sort of like, um, I mean, I, I think about it from my, my theater days. There, there was a period of time where I believed that, okay, to get the cast to trust each other, we're going to do a lot of trust exercises on these first three or four <laughs> rehearsals and play theater games and do all that. And that kind of never works. It seems almost the only way to build trust between actors in a play is just start doing the play. Yeah. And <laughs> so how are, how are you finding, how do you engender trust between people and communities? What are the first sort of the first strands, the first ways to, to create that sort of uh, uh, 
uh, I don't know whether it's to generate the oxytocin necessary for uh-huh. bonding, or do you have them do NLP on each other so they establish <laughs> rapport? I mean, what do you what do you find is the most valuable way for people to begin to uh, engage in trusting activity with each other? Right. Yeah. So, so in the book, I talk about uh, several different. I, I call them patterns that bind. Right. These different ways of behaviors that that kind of naturally get people to start trusting each other. There's things like, uh, you know, breaking bread, right? Potlucks, or, you know, even if it's not a potluck, just sitting down at a meal together is big. Collective labor, you know, the, the kind of classic Amish barn raising, or, you know, there's actually words for that, that same thing in dozens of different cultures. Hmm. Rites of passage, uh, you know, witnessing each other's big life transitions. There's something uh, called intimacy through adversity. So even if there's not an, an actual disaster, which actually does often tend to bring people closer together, if you kind of induce a kind of small kind of, you know, assignment that, that causes stress. So those are the stress games you were talking about in, in acting. You know, sometimes that can bring people to closer together. But, you know, one, one of the things that uh, I learned early on is that no matter what you do, it takes time. And, and sometimes we just have to be patient. There's this uh, Japanese word called nemawashi which literally in Japanese means turning the roots. So this is another great natural metaphor. It's, it's about, mm. you know, when you transplant a seedling, it goes through that period of transplant shock. It looks all droopy for a few days and then it perks up. And colloquially in Japanese, this also means the process by which uh, a group or, or two different people get to know each other before they, they can really start doing business together. So, you know, in, in Japan, traditionally there's, you, you know, you go to, you, you meet your uncle and, and you go do, drink a bunch of sake and do karaoke. And then only after all of these different social interactions, do you actually sit down and say, okay, here's what my company would like to do with your company. And right. so. That's what, uh, we interviewed uh, JT Rogers, who actually uh-huh. just won the Tony uh, for his play Oslo. And it's about the, uh, the, the guy and, and, and woman in Oslo who invited the Israelis and the Palestinians to have their the Oslo Accords. And it was all based on the premise that the people have to know each other as people before they can engage politically. So, you know, they have to be there sitting face to face and and talking about things other than their their political problem, because only when they've established that grounding, that human to human grounding, can they even begin to do the other. It's almost the, the Jimmy Carter approach of, you know, just looking in their eyes and knowing them as a person. And all of a sudden, the politics almost is less important than maintaining that human bond. Right. I mean, once you start to see someone as a full human being and not a business card, um, you know, you, you start right. to have respect for them as a whole person and, and can start to really open up and, and be vulnerable. And then that vulnerability in turn lets the other person trust you a little bit more. And are you finding ways to do that with, I mean, I, I would, for shorthand, I would call them Trump supporters, but, you know, that right. I find, you know, and this is, I've been talking a lot about this lately on the show, is that there's a, such a disdain by the progressive left for, you know, the so-called red or the, the flag wavers or the, uh-huh. the, the Trump supporters, if they're not seeing them as human beings with real problems and real concerns, you know, rather than just kind of short-circuited automatons, um, then we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think that, that humanizing the other is something that, uh, you know, we might ask other people to do all the time when, you know, see these uh, undocumented immigrants as people too and, 
um, you know, Muslims, most Muslims are, are really amazing people. And, and then we <laughs> fail to do that ourselves when we're talking about, you know, rural, you know, say white working class voters. Um, and, and part of it is just we're not around them. And, and I recognize in my own life that, you know, I'm around people of many different walks of life, many different ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, and all of them are from the same half of the political spectrum. And so um, I've done my best in the last you know, year or so to, to pop that bubble. I, I was fortunate enough to be invited to a dinner uh, that our local public radio station put together where uh, we all, it was three Trump supporters and, and three folks uh, who all happened to vote for Bernie. Um, and we all had dinner together and, and we talked about a little bit about the issues, but just about our backgrounds and, and why we came to the ideology we did. And it was great because we started to see them as humans first. And, and not as, you know, avatars espousing some crazy political opinion on the internet. And so by understanding what are the values behind the reasons that you decided to vote the way you did, you start to realize that we have actually a lot more in common than you think. You know, I think groups like the Tea Party are all about decentralization, all about local control. It so happens that, that they see the, the kind of big bad enemy as the federal government, whereas most folks on the left tend to demonize corporations. But ultimately, um, I, I think there's a lot of common ground there in terms of, you know, things like subsidiarity, things like valuing hard work and, and getting back to real community that we've lost. Right. Everybody's talking about small businessman, you know, or the small business person. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, however you're looking at it, really what they're talking about is, is let's have a, a bounded economy where we can't have these giant long distance extractions. I mean, so yeah, there's different ways of getting there. One is to just put up a wall and prevent any international trade, you know, and the other might be to induce more circulatory, uh, you know, processes in a local economy, you know, more like the, the kinds of stuff you talk about. But if we understand that that goal is the same, that people are looking for basic agency and autonomy and connection with others and the ability to create and exchange value freely, then it's like, okay, well, I understand we're all, we are all on, on team human here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. There, there was a colleague of mine up in Boulder um, who, um, you know, Boulder, of course, is, is filled with uh, big thinkers, people who are very progressive and, and in very much a bubble, right? Um, but and some he, of them have almost transcended from this reality into the next. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're already in the singularity, right? Exactly. Um, no, but, but he set up this kind of local currency that was actually designed to connect folks in that kind of liberal bubble in Boulder with the rural farmers outside of Boulder who, you know, also need, uh, you know, therapists or acupuncturists or accountants. And then, you know, all of those, you know, hippy dippy Zen folks in Boulder need people to help them learn how to garden or need them to, to fix their biodiesel car. Right. And, and a lot of those rural folks are the people with those hard hands on uh, skills. And so this this local currency through through this kind of economic design, it actually brought those people together and allowed them, you know, to save money on a lot of things they'd have to spend dollars on while making those connections. You know, you also, uh, I guess it's one of your earlier projects was something called Grow House, which, uh, you know, was really the conversion of an old, I guess, traditional greenhouse into this urban agriculture hub. And when I hear about projects like that, uh, some 
cynical questioning part of me. I guess it always remembers having read some article, usually in a place like The Economist or The Wall Street Journal, that says that all of these urban agriculture projects are kind of just craft beer, uh, (laughs) you know, cultural creative fantasies of a sustainable urban food source. I mean, can... Are these things real? Can a city somehow sustain itself with rooftop agriculture and and designs of this sort? Yeah. So I I mean I think there's a lot there to that question. And and first I'll just answer that that last part. So I definitely believe that the the technical ability is there for us to be entirely self sufficient in in our food needs as cities. I think we we have the ability to do that. Now I don't think. We should do that because I think there's valuable reasons why we should be getting a lot of things from our immediately surrounding neighbors in in rural areas. I also think, you know, the technical barriers are far from the biggest barriers. They're they're more socioeconomic and and political and all kinds of other things. But but I think, you know, groups like uh, the people that write articles like the one in The Wall Street Journal are saying this isn't sustainable because it can't scale. Right. And, and their perspective is always about, well, this won't work at, you know, thousands of acres. It, the, the, the numbers don't pencil out. So therefore, it's a failed solution. And, and I think part of the paradigm that, that we're coming from is it's not about one solution that scales up to do everything. It's about a lot of little solutions. And this is one of those little solutions that actually does work in a lot of different ways. You know, we... Um, it, it does work economically. We've, we've figured out a way to make it work. But even more important are the yields in terms of the, the community, right? So that greenhouse uh, is located in the most polluted zip code in the state of Colorado. And it's, it's this immigrant Latino community that is your kind of stereotypical food desert, right? There's no grocery stores for miles around. And so what we've done is uh, we sell a lot of that produce we grow uh, to fancy, you know, artisanal restaurants and Whole Foods and places like that. And that allows us to, to set some aside for distribution to people in that neighborhood, which is the whole point of the endeavor. But we have that kind of cash crop, that economic engine, so that we can sustain that. So really the question isn't like, can you grow all this lettuce sustainably and, and make the economics work? It's can you feed people in that neighborhood and have them grow their own food in a way that they're not they're they're getting healthy food they're not just getting the cast offs of of other wealthy folks but but it's, the project itself is staying economically viable and and we've proven that that's possible right so the object of the game is not to be able to seal off manhattan and have them grow all their own food on on their rooftops right exactly <laughs> i mean i think i think it's really valuable but you know, people, for example, community gardens, I think they're great. I think we need more of them. We're never going to feed even one family with a community garden. But the main yield of a community garden is community. And food is just kind of a nice little byproduct. So we have to, we have to think in terms of a, a diversity of forms of agriculture, whether it's urban or rural, and look at what are the different yields that we're getting out of each. Some are going to be caloric, some are going to be financial, and, and some are going to be even less tangible. Right. Well, like, you know... We grew, really, we grew four salads worth of 
vegetables uh-huh. in our backyard with you know several hundred hours of effort but the the payoff was when my you know at the time four-year-old daughter sees that a carrot comes out of the ground rather than <laughs> out of the grocery store i mean yeah. you wouldn't know because it was so i think the thing that was shocking to her was that the carrot was orange but it came out of the dirt so how did that so it just it kind of freaked her out she just never knew so <laughs> it's that sort of awareness that, uh, you know, and you see all the little hairs coming off it, which are roots, and to understand mm-hmm. what that is, I mean, more than an educational project, I feel like it connected her sense of what's going in her mouth is coming out of the ground, and she's part of this uh, part of this world and that she's walking on. Exactly, right. I mean, th- those moments are priceless, because yeah, you're, you're right, you learn some science, and, and that's valuable, but even bigger than that, it it puts you in connection with forces larger than culture, with things that are larger than just our, our kind of human concerns. And that's something that I think we've in, in many ways forgotten is important. Um, and so that connection, that biophilia, you know, the, the day-to-day connection with other species is something that we all need to figure out how we can get back to and, and nourish within ourselves and our communities. And, and gardens are, are obviously a great way to do that. Yeah, I mean, and that gets almost to the the, the heart of how uh, permaculture, as you'd put it, uh, really enhances what we think of as our humanity. You know, a lot of people hear Team Human and they think, oh, well, you're Team Human. What about the animals? What about the mosquitoes? What about everybody else? And well, there is no Team Human without without that. So part of what makes human beings so special and maybe even more special than your, your power book is is that connection and conversation with other species? Is that ability, I mean, maybe we're more conscious of it than others, but you know, the ability of a human being in the woods in prehistoric times to look at a wolf and say, let's be friends, is transcendent. You know, that's, that's what it means to be human. Right. I mean, we, we are part of ecosystems as much as we try and deny that. And even in, you know, the middle of Manhattan, you're still in ecosystems with, with cockroaches and, and pigeons and things like that. And then, you know, we are ecosystems. Our, our bodies themselves are uh, made up of many systems and, and, in fact, many species of bacteria and, and, and all kinds of things like that. And, and so by kind of flipping that clockwork mechanistic metaphor on its head and, and thinking of ourselves in terms of uh, being part of networks, being made of networks, um, I think it, it just changes how we relate to uh, not only other, other species, but then in turn other people. Um, right. and, and we see ourselves as embedded in these networks within networks. Right. I mean, the main premise of Team Human is that being human is a team sport. You can't be human alone. But, you know, I guess what we're saying here is neither can humanity be humanity alone, that the human species is, is teamed up with all of these other ones, you know, animals, vegetables, <laughs> uh, right. uh, of all kinds. Yep. And, and whether you want to get, you know, spiritual about it or just very scientific about it, the fact is that all of those other species have valuable things to teach us. Um, and that we, we're going to need those lessons if we're going to, uh, you know, make it out of our current quandary. Oh, and that gets to the big question, though, which is, uh, you say, well, whether you look at it scientifically or spiritually, I mean, we all know that there's a scientific 
accuracy to it. There's a, a scientific mm-hmm. reality to, you know, species and working in concert with each other. Do you feel that uh, ultimately that some spiritual perspective is required. <laughs> Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's almost like as if humanity is in a is in a giant 12-step program to bring ourselves off our addiction to industrial and capitalist processes and into more of a, a interrelationship with one another. Do we need to understand that there's a higher power or or greater truth going on here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I one of the things I do believe is that you know, if you want to talk about it epistemologically, right? Uh, yeah. Science is a very powerful tool, and it's not the only way of knowing. Um, we we know that, and so I think it's important to one way or another recognize other ways of knowing that that work for ourselves, and other ways of knowing that allow us to connect with patterns beyond ourselves. I think you know a, a lot of the reason why we've ended up in in such a short term focused, uh, growth focused society is that we're thinking very individualistically. We're thinking about our own well-being and what that does maybe in the short term is raises our standard of living, but in the long term disconnects us from thinking about our our ancestors and our grandchildren and, and other species as we've been talking about. And so having some narrative that connects us back to all those things whether we think of that as spiritual or, you know, whether it's cultural or, or whatever, I think that that's the kind of key piece that is missing in terms of our, our ways of knowing, our ways of telling stories about who we are and where we're going. I mean, sometimes when I try to do the big narrative thing, I... Um... I get kind of scared and depressed. You know, you can go to plenty of websites and look at what percent of the topsoil of the planet is no longer arable. And I start to wonder, have we gone just too far? Are we at the place where the only way we're really going to be able to thrive as a species is if two-thirds or three-quarters of us just die and there's fewer people for the planet to support? Or do we have to go the other way? Do we have to embrace the processes of Monsanto and kind of push through some genetic engineering shift where we can grow algae or or something on the oceans in order to feed all these people? Right. And, you know, I mean, I think those are questions I'm, I'm guessing millions of people are asking all the time. And I don't think we I don't think even permaculture has a clear answer to that. But what what I think it would say is, you know, it's, it's that cliche, think global, act local. Right. So we need to be thinking about those issues and, and talking about them. And at the same time, making our own communities be as 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 amazing models as they can be in what the rest of the world could be. Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually right now talking to you from um, a little book tour I'm doing down the West Coast. And so, you know, I've just been in uh, Olympia and Portland and Eugene and, mm. you know, seeing all of these really inspiring models of what people are doing literally in their own backyards, uh, you know, taking down fences between neighbors or, um, you know, painting the, the middle of intersections to, to encourage more community interaction and, and re-pedestrianize areas and reclaim public space. And, you know, it's not, not that those are one-size-fits-all solutions. They're not going to work for everybody. But they're showing how with enough critical mass, with enough willpower, with the right mindset, we can radically transform the communities right where we are 
And if enough of us do that in ways that make sense for our specific communities, you know, we won't need to get to that Monsanto style, you know, geoengineering. And hopefully we'll avoid that, you know, kind of big die off of billions of people, too. You say in your uh, in your bio, pretty much everywhere you have a bio, you say uh, you want to leave the world better than you found it. Uh, <laughs> I wonder sometimes, do you feel like that's possible? Uh, yeah, I do. And, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, part of it, uh, it took me a long time to realize this, but uh, I was raised to do that through, as, as I was raised Jewish, and there's this idea in Judaism, as you know, called tikkun olam, right, which is kind of healing the world. And I never made that, ex that connection explicit to permaculture until very recently. Mm. But, but one of the things that I find so uh, inspiring and transformative about permaculture is that, you know, growing up uh, and, and learning about, you know, things like you were talking about topsoil die off and overfishing and, and not to mention climate change. You know, I think we're, we, we're being told this narrative that humans are fundamentally destructive to the planet. And the best thing we can do is to shrink our footprint to be less bad, right? And as soon as you start practicing permaculture and, and learning the history of indigenous cultures uh, and, and what many uh, cultures did on the land for thousands of years, you realize that it's possible with the right setup for us to actually make ecosystems better while meeting our needs. And by that, I mean, we can, we can make topsoil deeper than it would have been had humans not been there. We can make it more biodiverse than it would have been. We can bring more rain than there would have been if humans had not been there. And, and you know, more and more archaeologists and anthropologists are seeing that vast landscapes have been transformed by people to become more productive as well as, you know, making our, our own lives better. And so... You know, is it is it easy to do that within the context of our kind of late capitalist industrial society where we're flying around all the time and, and have computers in our pockets? No, it's, it's hard to see how we can do that. But I've seen more and more that it is possible. And, and that's kind of what what keeps me excited and what keeps me going. Well, then I'm going to leave it at that so that we uh, we leave our uh, our we leave Team Human with that uh, excited, optimistic, uh, and inspirational thought that humans may not be the problem, that humans might actually be the solution. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam Brock. Everybody should, uh, should get change here now, particularly if they want to uh, enact some great, easy uh, DIY permaculture solutions for their themselves or their communities. There's really everything in there from gardening through local currencies. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a great primer. And if, if nothing else, these are the, uh, the trailheads for, uh, for further, further exploration. Thank you, Adam. And, and thanks for being on Team Human. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hey, this is Stephen here. I'd also like to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Team Human. And thanks to all of you who have been supporting the show. Your financial support helps make producing the show possible. This week's show featured intro music from Mike Watt. We had a special musical segue from Josh Citron, who put together a Team Human band for an evening and recorded and shared the results of that 
session with us. Thanks, Josh. We also featured music from Team Human guest Are You Serious? And the music you hear right now is from Fugazi. I'd also like to thank my friends at Zago, who designed our logo and who generously offer me desk space to work at when I'm in Manhattan. Thanks, Zago. Visit teamhuman.fm to learn more about the shows, our contributors, our guests, and ways to find the others. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.